This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, we tend to toss around the term pilgrimage pretty casually these days. Some people make pilgrimages to Graceland, for example, to see Elvis's stuff. And it wouldn't be out of place for an avid shopper to make a pilgrimage to the Bloomingdale's flagship store in New York City. But religious and spiritual pilgrimages are still very much with us. The Muslim Hajj might be the most famous, but Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, and Christians, as well as others, also make pilgrimages. I have to say, though, that although my family is quite Catholic, as of last week, I'd never met anyone before who'd ever actually been on a pilgrimage. That was before I met Chris Lowney. Lowney's a graduate of Fordham College and the author of two books on Christian and European history, and he's also a former seminarian. In 2006, Lowney took his own pilgrimage on the Way of St. James. It's a thousand-year-old pilgrimage route that attracts over 100,000 pilgrims every year. He didn't manage the whole route, although he did walk about 275 miles. But for every mile he walked, Lowney raised money for children's organizations in Kenya, the Philippines, and Angola. A little later on the show, we'll talk about what to do when the winter light makes it difficult to get out of bed, never mind walking 500 miles. But first, the somewhat more energetic Chris Lowney joined me in the studio last week to talk about his pilgrimage. Chris Lowney, welcome. Thank you so much. Now, I'll just start out with a really basic question. What is a pilgrimage exactly? Uh, well, a pilgrimage is a visit, usually a visit to a holy place, right? Probably the most famous pilgrimage in the world is um, the pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Which um, Muslims, if they have uh, good health, uh, are supposed to make once in a lifetime. And, you know, we could probably learn a little bit from, from, from that. You know, people are going to a place that's uh, holy in their religion, has very holy associations. They want to uh, be better themselves uh, from the process of making the journey. Um, and they hope they will derive some, you know, spiritual or human benefit from the journey. And, of course, the Christian, especially the Catholic tradition, is is filled with all kinds of pilgrimages to Lourdes and Rome and all kinds of places, including Santiago de Compostela, where I went a couple of years ago. So tell me why people go on pilgrimages if they're Catholic. I know if you're a Muslim, it's one of the requirements of your faith. But why do Catholics or Christians go on them? Right. For, I mean, first of all, there's no requirement to go on a pilgrimage. It's not like uh, this sort of thing that a Catholic is supposed to do or, you know, you're not like, uh, it's not, you're not a better person if you do it. But I would say my feeling is now in the 21st century, late 20th century, people are going for very personal spiritual quest kinds of reasons. You know, I mean, the, the majority of people that I've run into, um, you know, they're on some personal journey. Maybe they're trying to answer a question for themselves. Um, most pilgrimage sites have, you know, incredible historic uh, legacies attached to them. You know, the places thousands of, uh, well, as, as long as 1,500, 2,000 years uh, are the associations of some of these places. And so, you know, I guess within the Catholic tradition, there's a feeling that, um, you know, one, we give honor to our ancestors or holy people who've gone before us. And also in a way, you know, pilgrimage, at least in the Christian tradition, is kind of a metaphor for life itself. I mean, we're on a journey from birth to death. Uh, we're on a journey, you know, Christian tradition believes to another life. And the pilgrimage, in a way, um, is supposed to symbolize the kind of journey that we go through and hopefully give us benefits as we reflect along the way on what our life is supposed to be about and what we want it to be about. So tell me the story of your pilgrimage that you took in 2006. 
Uh, I um, I went to uh, Santiago de Compostela, which is in the northwest corner of Spain. Uh, so you know, not far from Portugal. People could could picture it that way. And that is uh, for a lot of history has been probably one of the top two or three pilgrim destinations within Christianity. You know, Rome and Jerusalem would be other famous ones, right? And by tradition, the um, relics, the bones of St. James the Apostle are in this tiny town. Probably in earnest from about the 800s, people have been journeying to Compostela by different routes. Probably the most popular route, the route I, I took, would start at the French border, you know, around the Pyrenees, and then that would be about 500 miles. So you walk um, pretty much in a straight line. You know, you're not going to get lost. It's very well signposted. Um, and why did I do it? I mean, I guess, I, first of all, I, I um, majored in medieval history when I was here at Fordham, when I studied here. And um, I've always had an interest in that. I always knew about the pilgrimage. And I, I guess I want to do it for personal, spiritual reasons. And as I, I guess we'll end up talking about, I also thought it would be a good occasion once I decided to do it to try and raise money for some uh, good causes. I'm curious, when you're on a pilgrimage, I mean, I've, I've been backpacking. I imagine this has something in common with that. But when, you're, when you are on a pilgrimage, what is your sort of life like when you're there? You know, what, where do you stay? Who do you meet? What kind of stuff do you do? And what aspects of it before you actually get to the site? Are there aspects that are religious that way? I guess the, fr- the first thing I would say is it becomes your life. You know, when you do this, it's 30 days. And for most people who are doing it, Really, their whole life is just about, you know, getting themselves fixed to walk that day and getting themselves fixed to walk the next day. So how would this work? Um, there are there are hostels, some that are run by little charities, some that are run by municipalities that are strung out all the way along the route. And they're dormitory-like. You know, you'd pay about uh, five or six euros, which is more expensive for us Americans today than it was two years ago. Uh, you pay about five or six euros, and that would entitle you to sleep in um, a dormitory. Not in any way luxurious. You know, probably 50, 60 beds, bunk beds, pretty cheek by jowl. You know, you don't have any room uh, to, your, to yourself very much. People start waking up about five in the morning. And, of course, when the first person wakes up and starts rattling his plastic bags, everybody wakes up, you know. And, you know, I went late August, very hot in Spain, so people tend to want to get on the road very early, about 6. Maybe you have a banana or something while you're, while you're walking, granola bar. And I usually walked probably um, 6 or 7 hours a day, you know, maybe 10, 15 miles. That was a sort of average. Maybe a little, 15 miles is a little longer than average, but something like that. And most people, would, some people would stop to have a leisurely lunch, but most people wouldn't, you know, because you, you sort of, once you're going... You want to keep going. So mid-afternoon you arrive, wash out your clothes by uh, by hand, and you know you're not ready to do much more than eat, go to bed, and get up and do it the next day. That's that's it. Becomes your life. So when you were doing it, what other um, I guess the word would be pilgrims did you meet? Yeah, I mean the human aspect of it is probably. I think most people find it the most satisfying. You know, I I went alone. A lot of people go alone. You see some small groups or twos and threes, but a lot of people are going alone. And, uh, you know, you'd meet some of everything. Actually, very few North Americans, a couple of Canadians. Uh, I met uh, folks from Brazil, Hungary, Japan, Hong Kong, uh, Argentina, uh, certainly every continental European country, lots of French, Spaniards, Germans, Dutch. 
Um, and so how, how would it work? You know, you'd sort of, for the first hour or so of each day, you'd kind of be loosely in contact with people, you know, because people are starting out more or less the right time, and those who are faster or slower are, are kind of passing by folks, and you might chat for a few minutes. But then once you're a, a couple of hours into the day, you know, you might end up being alone for the for three or four hours. You might not see another person because people get on their own pace. Uh, so th- for a number of hours, it becomes uh, solitary for most people. And then early evening, you all land in together for the most part in, in a similar kind of hostel. And so there's a lot of camaraderie in the evening. People have dinner together and get up and get ready to do it the next day. And of course, you end up with these very funny kinds of relationships because, you know, some people walk at a very similar pace. So you might end up spending four or five nights together having dinner. Other folks, you know, they're a little faster or slower, so you'd be with them for one or two days, and then they kind of disappear from your life. That's a little bit of um, meeting folks on an airplane kind of quality about it. You know, it was a little anonymous, and you're not going to see these people again. So you end up meeting people for an hour and then hearing, you know, these stories about their lives that uh, you, you, you don't hear similar stories often from your very best friends, you know, because uh, I think folks under the kind of anonymous fellowship that emerges in those kind of situations, um, you know, talk a lot about what they're trying to figure out by doing this. What kinds of stories did you hear? Uh, Well, what what did I hear? You have people, um, uh, you know, one, uh, should I marry my, should I marry this guy or or end the relationship? Um, Should we have a baby together? Different person. A couple of job changers, two job changers. One guy was a computer programmer, another guy who, uh, I forget what he did, both of them thinking about changing jobs. And a lot of a lot of folks who are on, I don't mean this in a denigrating way, but a kind of vague spiritual quest, you know, like they, they kind of want something more out of life. They may, I mean, I, I am a practicing Catholic, but you meet a lot of people who might have been raised in a religious tradition, but, you know, they wouldn't be formally religious in any way. And they're on some kind of a quest, and they know this is a spiritual thing, and they hope they're going to find some sort of answers. You know, big question kind of things, like what is life about? And now I'm in my 40s, and I'm going to have another 30 years here, and what is it all about? And those kinds of things. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking this week on the show with Chris Lowney. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Fordham chemist Joan Roberts about how winter light might be making us somewhat less energetic than Chris Lowney and about what we can do about it. But first, I asked Lowney to explain something to me. You're saying this and I'm thinking about the popularity of other things that are sort of things you do when you're trying to figure stuff out or when you're trying to get closer to yourself in the U.S. that are popular, things like, um, say, yoga or meditation, things like that. And also about the fact that so many Americans are Christian and Catholic and are very into it. And I'm wondering why you are the only person who I've ever met who's been on a pilgrimage. It's not a popular thing to do, you know, and especially walking. I mean, there are a lot of pilgrimages nowadays that would be like kind of by plane or bus. You know, like if you read a Catholic newspaper, you'd you'd see all kinds of advertisements for go to Rome or go to Lourdes. And, you know, we're going to take an airplane to Rome, and then we're going to take buses around to a few important cathedrals and basilicas and so on. And, okay, look, I mean, that's a wonderful thing to do, and I'm sure it's very enriching for people who do it. But I think part of the reality 
of, of what pilgrimage was through hundreds of years and that, that gets a little bit lost when we do it by plane or bus is it's kind of totally taking you out of your life. I, you know, I worked for a number of years as an investment banker. I mean, I lived incredibly busy, structured days where, you know, in 12 hours, I don't, I can't, I can't, uh, many days, it would be hard for me to count how many phone calls, emails, things, meetings I had. And this experience is totally different. I mean, there's nothing to do during the day, nothing to do, just walk until the next place. And I think part of the um, personal learning, the personal experience that goes on is precisely in just being alone with yourself for long, long stretches of time, no telephone, no entertainment, none of all the things that fill up our days. So um, the kind of modern version of pilgrimage, it, it seems to me, has a lot of great benefits for folks who do it. But in a way, you know, sometimes it kind of plays into our 21st century style of being human. We do things in very quick, efficient, pack-it-all-in ways, and I'm not quite sure that's what this is supposed to be about as an experience. What is the significance of uh, Santiago de Compostela? Actually, it's a tiny town. I mean, I don't know how many people that would be there now. In its heyday, you know, in 1100, 1200 uh, A.D., there was probably 5,000 people. And now, what would there be? I, I, I'd be embarrassed to guess, but maybe I'd say 15, 20,000. I mean, it's a small place. The cathedral is impressive, but, you know, I mean, I guess I could say it's not the kind of place that you'd walk 500 miles to get to. You know, I mean, you, in a way, it really is more about the journey. You know, I mean, nothing is so spectacular that you're going to say, look, I, uh, I'm going to walk 500 miles and be dazzled by it. So it's not, really, it's not really the place. I mean, when you get there, if you've walked at least 100 kilometers consecutively, you do get a kind of a stamp from the cathedral saying that you've done the pilgrimage. And for some people, you know, that's a big thing. But again, I think in a way that's sort of missing the point of what the whole process is about. Now, for you, when you did your pilgrimage in 2006, the process was also about raising money. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess in some ways to do it, I mean, it's a little bit self-absorbed to begin with, you know, to sort of head off and do this thing. And and it struck me that it might become a little self-absorbed if I tried to use it to raise money for charity. Uh, it's been my privilege over the years to become aware of a lot of uh, a number of great charities in the developing world. And, you know, one of the one of the realities when you work in international charities is that um, a lot of money never quite makes it to the developing world. And I don't mean in any way because of fraud or anything like that, but it's expensive to have headquarters in New York and people who raise money and all this kind of stuff. So I, my idea was that I would pick out a handful of places where I knew the folks, trusted the folks who were doing very good work, and I would just ask people to pledge, you know, whatever, a dollar or 10 cents for each mile I walked, and I would just transfer that money to these places. I want to ask you, that became just not one effort that you made, but that actually became a whole organization that you that you run. Tell me about that. The first thing was I felt like if I was going to send the money to two or three different organizations in the developing world, I kind of needed, just first for tax purposes, a way for people to be able to give money. You know, you can't get a tax deduction in the U.S. unless there's an organization legally you're giving money to. So I set up uh, what's called Pilgrimage for Our Children's Future because all these developing world charities serve children, either education or health care. There are no employees. Nobody takes a salary. There's really no, there, well, there is no overhead. Any money that people give just gets transferred. 
So I set that up initially as a conduit. I don't mean that in a shady sense, you know, just a way that people could give money that could be transferred. But then as it has turned out, a year later, a year after I went, a couple of recent graduates in Boston College uh, decided they wanted to do it. They asked for my advice. We set them up on the website of the pilgrimage. They did it. Um, They're in better shape than I did. They cracked all 500 miles, no trouble. Uh, And so, you know, what started perhaps as a one-time event and a one-time charity now has taken on a life and um, hopefully is going to have some future that might even involve folks uh, here at Fordham. So tell me what organizations the money does go to. Tell me about those. Uh, One that um, I'm very uh, proud and touched by is a place called St. Aloysius Gonzaga School in uh, Nairobi in Kenya. St. Aloysius Gonzaga is, um, you know, one of the famous uh, Jesuit saints, well, famous to some to some Catholics, <laughs> not widely famous. And uh, this is a school that is in uh, Kibera slum. Probably a few listeners have been to uh, Nairobi. Kibera is a ter- it's one of the worst slums in Africa. I mean, it's a huge slum. This is, you know, your classic stereotypical image of what a a slum would be. I mean, roof, uh, tin, shacks, cheek by jowl, no running water, no electricity, dirt paths in between. Um, uh, The listeners know, of course, that uh, right now in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a terrible AIDS problem, much worse than the United States. Uh, Lots and lots, uh, among other problems, of AIDS orphans. And St. Awash Gonzaga is a a tuition-free high school for AIDS orphans. It is uh, a demanding high school. I mean, kids, you know, they have many of them, no parents are being raised by a neighbor or or some relative, uh, but they have to take a test to get into this school. They have to have good grades to continue. Uh, It was an effort uh, started by um, a Jesuit and some uh, lay colleagues of his, some Kenyans. So that's one uh, great, uh, to me, a great piece of work. Uh, And, you know, I'm really delighted, and everybody who supported the pilgrimage is delighted to be able to uh, support an effort like that. Now, does your organization do any other kind of fundraising outside of this, or is it just a way for people to use their own pilgrimages to raise money? At, at this point, that's pretty much all it is. Occasionally, I'm asked to give talks on one or another book that I've written, and often when I give a talk, I will ask people to make a donation um, to the charity in lieu, in lieu of a fee. But there's no, you know, we at this point, we're kind of still uh, in our crawling stage, I guess, to use the image of pilgrim transit-relating imagery. And no, I mean, we haven't kind of taken on any more organized fundraising efforts other than just that. A little bit organic. You know, we'll see where we are in a couple of years. One of the listeners wants to um, step up and be a volunteer development officer. That would be terrific. Great. Um, I will ask you one more question, and I will close with this. When you did this and when the two others did it, did it make it more meaningful for you? The the uh, the charity? Yeah, yes, yes, definitely, you know, because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean this in a, in a sentimental way, but, I mean, very frankly, I, every morning, I, first of all, I used to spend, you know, I, I took the names of everybody who had agreed to make a pledge or donate money. I asked them if there were anybody they wanted me to remember, you know, to pray for while I was walking. And that in itself, I heard all kinds of very touching stories, you know. I mean, people who have um, problems in their life or sick relatives or things that they're grateful for. So 
I was aware of that. I saw every morning I thought and prayed for the, you know, little uh, children who benefit from these charities. So absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it was a very different kind of experience. And, and you know, also I would, I would say I had in my mind, you know, there, I, I don't know how many people have done this pilgrimage in history, millions, clearly. I mean, there's been since 800 or so A.D. And, um, you know, you're very aware, or at least I was very aware, of thousands and thousands of people who died on their way. And in some metaphorical sense, I feel like you're carrying their hopes forward. I was very aware of that. And as it turned out, I didn't finish. And then a year after I tried to do it, you know, a couple of other folks did it, and they ended up carrying my hopes uh, forward. So, yeah, that's very much part of the experience. It's a very, it's a very a deep experience of charity and connection and, and so on. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, is, it, is it okay to mention the website of the charity? <laughs> uh, it's uh, Pilgrimage for Our Children's Future, uh, which is um, www, of course, p-o-c-f dot o-r-g. Well, Chris Lowney is an author, and he's also the founder of the charitable organization Pilgrimage for Our Children's Future. Chris Lowney, thanks so much. It was my great pleasure. Thank you. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a chat with the author of a new biography about Ethel Merman. Now, if the idea of walking several hundred miles makes you want to roll over and cover up with a thick, fluffy blanket, it might not just be the fact that that is a really long walk. It might be the light, or the lack of light, that's coming in through your bedroom window. We all know by this point about seasonal affective disorder, and many of us know from experience that come the end of daylight savings time, we find ourselves wanting to eat more and stay awake less. But why is that, and what can we do? As it happens, I didn't have to go far to get an answer to that question. Chemist Joan Roberts, who is the chair of natural sciences at Fordham's Lincoln Center campus, is a researcher on just this topic. I called her up to find out what it is about the sun that's making me so tired. Joan Roberts, thanks so much for talking with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, what can we look forward to happening to our bodies now that daylight savings time has ended and it's going to be dark earlier? That is going to completely modify your circadian rhythm, or your circadian rhythm is controlled by light going through the eye and going to a certain part of the brain, the hypothalamus, and from there it affects your, your sleep, your metabolism, your reproductive system, your immune system. Oh, your whole body's going to get messed up. So why, why am I so sleepy uh, all of a sudden? Because... You make different hormones at night, and one of the hormones you make at night or and in the dark is called melatonin. And melatonin is your natural sleep hormone. It's a natural sleeping pill. And this usually begins to be produced about, oh, 10 o'clock, and maxes out at about midnight and then starts coming down around 3 o'clock in the morning. But as the the uh, seasons change and it gets darker in the winter, you, your melatonin starts going up earlier, and so you get sleepy. So what, what are sort of the, the symptoms of all this, this change in our bodies as a result of it getting darker earlier and staying dark later? The first thing had to do with sleep, which is an increase in melatonin earlier in the evening. The second has to do with hunger. You actually 
want comfort food, you want more carbohydrates, you want cakes, you want cookies, you want milk, you want ice cream, you want mashed potatoes, and all of that through a very complex method. It's not as simple as I'm explaining it. Increases serotonin, so you uh, light will increase serotonin, and you're going to be depleted in that. So you're going to be a little bit depressed in the winter, even if you don't have seasonal depression. And so you want to make up for that by eating what we call comfort food. So your hunger is going to change, your body's going to be tired, you're just going to be sort of jet lagged. Wow, that sounds great. Um, so what what are sort of the thoughts about why we're like this? I guess evolution wise, why? Why is it beneficial to have our bodies be like this? Oh, well, we actually are supposed to be supposed to have half dark and half light uh, because there are at least 10 hormones that are made in the dark and, and more than that that are made in the morning in the light. And if we just followed Mother Nature, we'd be making the proper hormones in the day and the evening. If we were outside or just sitting by a fire, the lighting would be fine for us. But instead, with all this new artificial lighting and the computer lighting and the TV lighting in the middle of the night, then uh, this gets disrupted. So our body was designed thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, when we had daylight from the sun in the morning and we had sunset with a little bit of red and not too much blue light in the evening. But we've changed all that with artificial lighting. So Mother Nature was fine. It's just we changed things. How serious is all this? Is this really stuff that you can feel that affects you in a really uh, meaningful way? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, The official term is seasonal affective disorder or seasonal depression. But actually, it can be seasonally manic also. That is, you can be underactive and tired and depressed and have your immune system suppressed in the winter, and then you can have it overactive in the summer and even be paranoid in the summer. So it, some... It has the appearance of manic depression. You can uh, be paranoid in the summer? Yeah. You can be paranoid. You can be suicidal in the summer by having too much light. For those of us who live in New York City, um, what, are there any sort of light-related issues that face us specifically? We're kind of lucky. We're in the right latitude where we get... It, it's pretty well balanced, the, the light in the winter and in the summer. The people that really are devastated are the ones that are way up in uh, Alaska, in Russia, in Scandinavia. Then they have, you know, very serious uh, shifts in uh, their body, immune response and mood, because you could have 16 hours of, or 18 hours of light during the day in the, in the summer, and then only four hours of light in the day in the winter, even in England. That's when I started doing the research. I went on a uh, sabbatical to England, and I started getting seasonally depressed. And then I began to believe my own research. <laughs> so what what should we do to prevent ourselves, if we can, from having these problems in the winter? One of the things you can do, all right, if you're really seasonally depressed, then you have to go see a doctor, and they will set you up with a certain lighting pattern. But for most of the people are slightly seasonally affected, it's very, very easy. What you do is the light that goes through your eyelids is the light that you need to wake up and to rebalance your circadian rhythm. So what you do is you go and turn on the lights 
early in the morning, maybe set an alarm for five or six in the morning in the dead of winter, turn on the lights, and you can go back to bed. It's perfectly, open up the shades, let the light come in. Daylight is the best, but if not, you can turn on all your lights. Go back to sleep. As Even with your eyes closed, you'll get enough light to shift your circadian rhythm properly. And then don't be afraid to go to sleep early because you feel like it. You know, um, it's just your body telling you that it's got dark and you want to go to sleep. That's all right. It's very important for to uh, for to have very very dark room to sleep at night and to have very very bright light in the morning. That's what you want to do. Well, great. Well, thank you, Joan Roberts. Um, Joan Roberts is a professor of chemistry, and she's the chair of the Department of Natural Sciences at Fordham's Lincoln Center campus. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's also in our archive. You can find that on our website as well. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening. Enjoy all that leftover turkey, and have a fabulous weekend. Last Saturday night I got married Me and my wife settled down Now me and my wife are parted Gonna take another stroll downtown Irene, good night Irene, good night Good night, Irene, good night, Irene I'll see you in my dreams. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.